Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we continue our coverage of Earth Week. For our weekly Earth Watch, we speak with South African environmentalist Desmond Desai. We discuss the rain bomb that recently hit the city of Durban, killing more than 300 people, injuring many more, and forced thousands to evacuate. What were the causes, climate change or government negligence? And France goes to the polls this Sunday in the second round of presidential elections where centrist incumbent Emmanuel Macron faces off against right-wing Marine Le Pen. Meanwhile, the Saint-Papier, the movement for the undocumented, they have occupied a building in Paris and established an embassy for those without papers. Our guest is Benoit Martin, who lived in France for many years and who closely follows the Saint-Papier and other movements in France. Also, as National Poetry Month is wrapping up, East Los Angeles poet Ron Baca joins us. Also, our weekly Earth Minute. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Russia's President Vladimir Putin is claiming victory in the strategic port of Mariupol, though he ordered his troops not to storm the last holdout of some 2,000 Ukrainian troops and civilians holed up in the Astaval steel plant. His comments are translated by Al Jazeera. I consider the proposed storming of the industrial area pointless. I order to abort it. This is the case when we must think, that is, we must always think, but even more so in this case, about preserving the life and health of our soldiers and officers. There's no need to climb into these catacombs and crawl underground through these industrial facilities. Block off this industrial area so that not even a fly comes through. Putin's order may mean Russian officials are hoping they can wait for the defenders to surrender after running out of food or ammunition. Russian troops have besieged the southeastern city since the war and largely pulverized it, leaving residents there without water or electricity. Control over Mariupol gives Russia a pathway to send naval troops to the eastern Donbass region, where Russia has intensified its attack for a takeover. The United Nations condemned recent reports of Russian troops killing civilians in that region. Here's spokesperson Stefan Dejarik. We are gravely alarmed by the mounting humanitarian crisis in Ukraine amid an intensifying Russian offensive in the east of the country. Today, the uh, UN crisis coordinator for Ukraine, Amina Wad, warned that the loss of life and severe trauma caused by attacks on hospitals, schools, places of refuge is utterly shocking, as is the devastation of critical civilian infrastructure in the country. Meanwhile, Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister Olga Stefanishia said more than 1,000 bodies of civilians are in morgues in the nation's capital, Kiev. 
after Russian troops withdrew from that area. President Joe Biden is set to announce plans to send additional military aid to help Ukraine fight the Russian invasion today. That's in addition to the $2.6 billion in military assistance the U.S. has already approved for Ukraine. The new package is estimated at $500 million. It includes heavy artillery and ammunition. The announcement comes as Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky has made a plea for more weapons to fight Russia. Russia's charged the U.S. and allies with fomenting the war by supplying Ukraine with weapons. Earlier this week, Canada said they will send heavy artillery to Ukraine. Today, Spain and Denmark's prime ministers are visiting Ukraine's capital, Kiev. Dutch prime minister said the Netherlands will send more heavy weapons to Ukraine as well. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has requested to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow to discuss the urgent steps to end the fighting in Ukraine. The request came after a group of more than 200 former CNUN officials wrote to Guterres warning unless he does more personally to take a lead in trying to mediate a peace in Ukraine, the United Nations risks not just irrelevance, but its continued existence. Sarah Walton reports from the UN in New York. The UN says the Secretary General has sent letters to representatives of Ukraine and the Russian Federation asking for President Zelensky and President Putin to meet with him in their respective capitals. It comes after a letter signed by more than 200 former UN officials called on the Secretary General to take a leading role in mediation in the conflict. They said we want to see a clear strategy to re-establish peace and called for Guterres to visit conflict-stricken areas, hold discussions with opposing sides and even to temporarily move his office to Europe to be closer to the negotiations. I'm Sarah Walton in New York. Meanwhile, the Russia's defense ministry reported its first launch of a new Sarmat intercontinental ballistic missile. President Vladimir Putin said the weapon is unique and would make those who threaten Russia think twice. Violence has intensified in Palestine. Israel's air force and Palestinian militants traded fire across the Gaza frontier as clashes erupted between police and Palestinians at Jerusalem's most sensitive holy site. The developments worsened an escalation that's been eerily similar to the lead-up to last year's Israel-Gaza war. The violence appears to be the heaviest cross-border fighting since last year's 11-day war. Amidst a wave of union activity nationwide, workers at an Apple store in Atlanta have filed for a union election, making them the first to do so out of the tech giant's 272 retail stores. This comes amidst a wave of union activity for other large corporations, including Amazon and Starbucks workers. President Joe Biden is sending his administration's first national drug control strategy to Congress. White House drug czar Dr. Rahul Gupta says a strategy is the first to prioritize what's known as harm reduction. That means it will focus on preventing death and illness in drug users while trying to engage them in care and treatment. I'm Christina Onestead. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Voters in France will have their say this Sunday when a runoff election between centrist incumbent Emmanuel Macron faces off with right-wing anti-immigrant candidate Marine Le Pen. Le Pen is known for being racist and an Islamophobe. Nevertheless, she has seen her popularity rise. Le Pen's father 
father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, was the founder in 1972 of the right-wing National Front, known for being anti-Semitic. The party of Le Pen have played the long game, it seems. Meanwhile, Emmanuel Macron was an investment banker who was new to politics when he ran and won the last election. He has a reputation in France for being arrogant and elitist. The winner will serve a five-year term. In a debate last night, the only one to take place prior to Sunday's election, Macron attacked Le Pen for her position of taking away the right of Muslim women to wear head scarves. Now, France has the largest Muslim population in Europe. Macron also went after Le Pen for her party's $9.8 million loan from a Czech Russian bank. Macron had entered the race as a strong frontrunner, but as he increasingly positioned himself as Europe's leader in the war between Russia and Ukraine and his strong pro-EU and pro-NATO stance, he was falling behind in the polls as the French were more concerned with the cost of living at home. Anti EU Marine Le Pen put herself forward as the candidate most concerned about the poor, but progressives in France were not buying Le Pen's reinventing herself from a far-right candidate known for her racist views to someone truly concerned about the well-being of the poor. Let us go to a clip from Reuters about this. French President Emmanuel Macron and far-right challenger Marine Le Pen locked horns on Wednesday in a high stakes election debate. They're only one before Sunday's presidential election. The angry face-offs saw them spar over the war in Ukraine, specifically Le Pen's links to Russia, as well as the economy, the idea of a hijab ban and the European Union. Macron's strongest line of attack against his rival was her past admiration of Russian President Vladimir Putin and a loan for her 2017 campaign contracted through a Russian bank. You depend on the Russian power. You depend on Mr. Putin. A few months after saying that, Madame Le Pen, you took out a loan from a Russian bank in 2015, first Czech Russian bank. Le Pen rejected the accusations. He knows very well that I am a completely free and independent woman. For Le Pen, who lags Macron in voter surveys by as much as 56 to 44, the debate was a chance to persuade voters she has the stature to be president. Le Pen has toned down her once staunchly anti-EU rhetoric as part of a bid to broaden her electoral appeal. She pledged to give money back to millions of French made poorer during Macron's five-year presidency. But she continued her far-right anti-hijab stance. I want to ban the hijab in the public space. I think, and I'll say it in the clearest possible way, that the veil is a uniform imposed by Islamists. Voters will be reckoning with two opposing visions of France. Macron offers a pro-European, liberal platform, while Le Pen's nationalist manifesto is founded on deep Euroscepticism. A snap poll conducted for the BFM TV channel showed that 59% of respondents found Macron the more convincing of the two. However, Macron's lead in opinion polls is much narrower than five years ago, when he beat Le Pen with 66.1% of the vote.
Alrighty, there you go. So meanwhile, progressives in the first round of the election held on April 10th overwhelmingly voted for anti-capitalist Jean-Luc Mélenchon. It now remains to be seen whether or not Mélenchon voters will come out and vote for Macron or stay home with the possibility of giving a victory to Le Pen. Pundits on both sides of the Atlantic are comparing the possibility that Mélenchon voters could vote for Le Pen, as was the reality when some Bernie voters went for Donald Trump. Since the first round of elections, Macron's lead over Le Pen has increased by as much as 56 to 44 percent, although many, according to polls, still see Macron as arrogant and as someone who flirted with the right wing. Right wing views over the past decade have become more mainstream in France as they have in the U.S., according to reports. Now, all of this is happening in the context of a country increasingly divided by left and right. The struggle of immigrants of color in France against racist police violence has made headlines over the past years, and the disgrace of the treatment of immigrants in the Calais refugee camp has been documented. Meanwhile, France and the UK are at odds over responsibility for migrants crossing the channel from France to the UK, where many have lost their lives. The Saint-Papier movement in France has again emerged. Saint-Papier, the movement of undocumented. They have occupied a building in Paris where they have established an embassy for undocumented immigrants. They contrast the double standard of the welcome mat being rolled out for migrants from the Ukraine with the mistreatment of Muslims and other immigrants of color. Now, for the past five years, France has seen an uptick in popular movements, including the Yellow Vest movement that at its height shut down Paris. Now, here to discuss all of this with us, I'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Benoit Martin. He has lived in France for many years and has followed the Saint-Papier movement since it began in 1966, as well as other social movements in France. He is a community organizer with Payday, who are men campaigning with the global women's strike. He speaks to us from London, England. Benoit, thank you for joining us. Okay, so Benoit, before we, a few things I want to discuss with you, including the Saint-Papier movement, the movement of immigrants, and some of the other social movements uh, happening. But meanwhile, let's start, though, with the election. Last night, there was a debate, and it seems as though Macron has come out ahead, according to polls in the debate. Uh, but um, Mélenchon, um, many people see him in a way as a kind of a kingmaker with whether or not he will encourage his voters and whether his voters, because he came so close. And what are you hearing about what his voters will do? When the first round was the result of the first round was announced. Mélenchon, who in fact lost by less than about 400,000 votes, and I want to say something about that regarding the other candidates who were so-called progressive. Uh, but he, he, he lost by about 1%. And it, the first thing he said is, this is a new chapter that is opening. The struggle continues. 
So it was not a defeat, if you like, of that popular movement that has been built. And he made it very plain that not one vote should go to Le Pen. He didn't endorse Macron in so many words as others have done, but he made it plain. And I think a lot of voters will, will read his lips, if you know what I mean, and vote for you know, uh, the other candidate but Le Pen. Uh, there's a popular say at the moment where people say, uh, you know, it's better a, a, a vote that stinks than a vote that kills. So there is a, a very, uh, a lot of anger at the policy that Macron has uh, put forward over the last five years. There's now 10 million people who are poor in France. Uh, a lot of people are in food bank and so on. And Macron has been known for his violence uh, against protesters. You mentioned the Gilets jaunes who were campaigning against pension, which is now being increased to the age of 65, uh, but also other policy, uh, refusing to increase minimum wage, all these economic policy that impact on people's pockets. So there's a lot of anger at Macron, but obviously there's a lot of anger at, the, at, the, at Le Pen. And many say that because of the policy of Macron, who was also racist, let's not forget that the sans-papier movement you mentioned, who want uh, just to live their life like any other citizen. People are working in France, have been there for many years, but because they don't have their paper, they can't have access to public services, they don't have access to proper wage, and so on. And the response of Macron over the last five years have always been a, a, a refusal. And the sans-papier have organized marches, uh, demonstration. There is now a big movement in France uh, to combine both the demand of the sans-papier and the demand of people who have been victims, especially family of color, who have been victims by, you know, from police violence and uh, harassment and so on. So that will continue. And we have seen after the election, on the one hand, a big reaction against the, the score that Le Pen was able to, to get, and a lot of anger against the other left party, including the Communist Party, who, if they had stood out and abandoned their, their you know, refused to be candidate and put their vote to, the, to Mélenchon, who was the only uh, candidate who could win, uh, we would be in a total totally in, in a different situation today. Uh, so there's a lot of anger also against the left in, in that sense. Uh, but I think what is surprising to me is that people have, far from giving up, it seems that the movement has increased. We've seen massive demonstrations last Saturday across France against the rise of, the, of Le Pen. We've seen also, as you mentioned, the Saint-Papier occupying a building who will be a place of organizing and campaigning. Uh, we have seen the student, and has not been reported a lot, but students occupy for some days many uh, big universities, and they were expelled, again, very violently by the police. But these are new things that we have seen since the first round of the election, and it seems to me that regardless of the vote on Sunday, uh, that will, movement will continue. And let's not forget that in France there will be another election in June for the MPs. 
uh, you know, for the representative, if you like, at, in Parliament. And there has been in the past a situation where you have a president who's more on the right and a parliament who's more on the left. I'm sure you have the similar contradiction in the U.S. A lot of people in the United States had no idea that an anti-capitalist candidate came very, very close to being in the runoff with Macron. And so I'd like you to tell us a bit about that candidate and what some of his policies were. Jean-Luc Mélenchon represents a movement called uh, France Unbound, you know, La France Insoumise. And they have built on that to build a bigger coalition called the Popular Union, Union Populaire, which bring together activists in the ecology movement, in the trade union movement, in the community organizing movement, anti-racist, and, and, and so on. So there's a kind of a, a dynamic between that candidate and the movement pushing on the ground for their demand. The program of Mélenchon is anti-capitalist in the sense that they want to stop private property of basic necessity like, you know, water, uh, transport. They want to bring more investment in hospital, things like that. They also want to do a big, big shift on the ecology and implement what they call, you know, the green rule, where, whereby you don't take from the environment more than you can, than it can take, you know, recover, if you like. So they're thinking massive investment in ecology project. They were thinking immediately as freezing prices, because people are getting poorer, to freeze the prices of basic uh, essential goods, fuel, uh, also increasing minimum wage, increasing benefits. Uh, so there's a, a whole policy of rebalancing the inequality of wealth, if you like. Uh, and then there are other um, policy, uh, I mean, fundamentally, uh, a big, big change in the society, as a bit like those who will remember President Chavez in the day he was elected, they rewrite the constitution. And that's one thing that Mélenchon wanted to do, to bring back to people together to rewrite the constitution. And that would be quite a mobilizing movement and a big transformation. So a lot of people voted for that project. It failed by very little. And if it hadn't been for, as I mentioned, the left being thinking at their own party interest rather than the whole movement interest, we would have a, a, a left-wing candidate for the second round this Sunday. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Right. Um, so it, it does seem as though there is this, this big divide. And as you say, there is this massive, not only immigrants' rights movement, the movement of the Saint-Papier, but also the Yellow Vest movement and other movements that have come up, particularly during the Macron era. So how do you see this playing out in terms of support or lack of it for the Saint-Papier and for the immigrants' rights movement? For example, have the the left or those who support Alain have they come out and 
offered support to the Saint-Papier who've now taken over this building in France. It does seem as though Macron, even as you say, his policies have been racist. I mean, the, the police beatings of young people of color, et cetera, a lot of that happened during his administration. He didn't seem to do much of anything about it, but now he is making a big deal about defending the right of Muslim women to wear headscarves. So, you know, it does seem as though immigrants are being used one way or the other in the election. Macron, you know, to try to, uh, you know, make his claim one way or the other. But meanwhile, what is happening in terms of support uh, for the Saint-Papier and uh, Benoit, and also give us your final thoughts on all of this. Sure. I mean, Macron has refused for the last five years the ongoing demand of the Sympathie, which was a simple demand for regularization, that is, give us our paper, give us our right to work, give us our right to uh, public services and, and everything else, like any person who works in France, which, you know, I think it's quite a reasonable demand. But despite massive support, and the Sympathie in France have been campaigning for the last, 20, 25, 26 years, you know, on that demand, the paper for all. And Macron has systematically refused even to meet with them. So there's been a lot of scorn from the Macron uh, administration against the Saint-Papier. So I think for, for the Saint-Papier to grow, it will, you know, it will become from the grassroots. And I think this is where they, they started with, with that occupation. We'll have to see, and maybe I could conclude on that, we'll have to see what happened on Sunday. Uh, but I think the movement outside parliament politics will continue. I, I, I feel that there is a, a lot of anger, and regardless of the winner, and I think most people hope that Le Pen will be uh, defeated, uh, regardless of the result on Sunday, that movement is bound to continue, and that might impact uh, and give us a, a more left-wing parliament in June. We'll see to that. Finally, finally, uh, Benoit, we know about all of the tensions uh, going on. The the camp in France, Calais, even though it was uh, supposed to be closed, that basically is still going on in the forests that, that are around. And the Saint-Papier in this call that they have made, they have noted what they see as a double standard between the rollout mat for uh, migrants coming from the Ukraine. And, and rightly, they say, they should be welcomed, but contrast that with the treatment of Muslims and other migrants of, of color in France and throughout uh, Europe. And just uh, a quick thought on that, Benoit. Well, you're right. The contrast cannot be uh, more striking. I mean, people in Calais have been beaten up by the police. They stole their tent. They stole their food. They stole their bag. It was heavy and continued to be heavy repression. People have to hide in forests the whole lot. It's really, really heavy. So I can see, uh, quite rightly, people say we want the same as refugee from Ukraine. A war is a war. Wherever we come from, we are entitled to, to that treatment. And what the French government is doing to welcome the, the Ukrainian refugee should apply. And it is possible to do that. It took them two weeks to open their door, to bring the refugee in, to give them, you know, housing and everything uh, to, to, to help them to accommodate in, in their new life in France. 
So they want that. They definitely, that's, that's a big part of that. Right. Well, on that note, Benoit, thank you for joining us and breaking this all down for us. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. All righty, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and we are now going to go to our weekly Earth Minute. The Biden administration has announced plans to resume oil and gas drilling on public lands, despite halting new drilling leases in 2021. The proposal, which raises royalties for oil and gas companies by 50% to supposedly limit global emissions, is being condemned as a reckless failure of climate leadership. According to the Center for Biological Diversity, it's as if they're ignoring the horror of firestorms, floods, and mega droughts, and accepting climate catastrophes as business as usual. Resuming lease sales to increase oil and gas drilling, but with higher fees imposed to supposedly address climate change, is absurd. Transformational system change requires stopping all oil and gas development and looking for ways to dramatically decrease our energy consumption. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project. Alrighty, and this is Margaret Prescott and Desmond Dessav, who's based in South Africa and environmentalist, is waiting to speak with us for our weekly Earth Watch. But we're going to take a short station break. When we return, we will turn to the environment in South Africa. After they took I from the bottomless pit, but my hand was made strong by the end of the Almighty. We forward in this generation triumphantly. Won't you help to Alrighty, and that is the late, great Bob Marley's redemption song. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And you could check us out on Facebook. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And uh, check out our website at SoTrueRadio.org. We are nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Houston, Texas, in the United States, and internationally. A SoundCloud shout out to our listeners in France. We are now going to turn our attention to our weekly Earth Watch. Of course, this week we have been doing coverage as this is Earth Watch week. Tomorrow, Friday, um, is actually Earth Day. And I'd like to welcome uh, to our show Desmond Dessa, a South African environmentalist and recipient of the 2014 Goldman Prize. 
He's known for protesting environmental justice issues in Durban, South Africa, related to access to green space and pollution. The region of the city where he lives is known as a cancer alley because of the 300 plus industrial facilities in the area. Good afternoon, good evening in, in all, of, in the, all the viewers in the U.S. and good evening to you. Right. So, uh, Desmond, uh, let us start with this. Um, the uh, Around the world, there were scenes of this recent flooding in South Africa's third largest city, which is Durban, killing at least 300 residents. So, you know, I've traveled to the U.S. before Katrina in 2003 and um, so, uh, and then got the aftermath of Katrina in uh, in, in um in Mississippi as well as in Louisiana and New Orleans. And then when I was on my way back to the U.S. in 2015, I saw Hurricane Harvey and the devastation and people hanging hanging on their homes uh, down the Mississippi in various areas. And Durban, we've experienced a similar thing. And um, shocking for me was that uh, three years ago, we lost 70 people in a huge rain bomb that descended on the city and the province as a whole. And, you know, we started to urge the government to do something about the climate crisis that people were feeling. And mostly it affected the marginalized, the poor, and the vulnerable. And we said to the president then and the government that it's time to put together a plan uh, that uh, can take into consideration uh, how do we adapt and how do we deal with the crisis uh, of indecency, of inhumane conditions such as not having access to water, but also your home, your only home and all your belongings being destroyed in it, as well as family members. Three years later, we are feeling we have got the same and even worse, um, the worst of the, of the rain that has poured down on the communities in the province where I come from. And in the city, we've lost over 450 new, uh, lives in, in these floodings. Uh, but more importantly, people's homes have been destroyed. And these are, these are really the, these are really the poorest of the poor, you know, and they're living on floodplains. They're living near rivers and everything has washed out. Everything has washed away, including, uh, the school uniforms of the children, all the school books. So they've lost everything. Every single thing that they ever owned, the meager um, belongings that they owned is all gone, including food. So I was around the area in the last few days, um, in the areas that affected the most. Um, I've seen the devastation. I, do, I heard families cry about the, the number of their families being dead and, you know, children being washed away and not recovered. So we're still hoping that this figure will rise as they look at how do they the bodies that are not accounted for at the moment, um, they recover it either through the rivers or through the ocean or somewhere through the mudslides. But it's devastation. Um, most of the homes are completely flattened. Um, the president of our country has come through the province and stated a commitment to do something about it. But so did he do three years ago. He made a commitment to those that lost their lives, to those that lost their homes, that they will rebuild. And three and a half years later, people are still waiting for that to happen. So it hasn't happened for the poorest of the poor, despite the better, the promise of 
uh, crossing the Rubicon in 94 when Mandela was a president, that a better life for those that were outcasts, for those that were demonized, and those that were kept apart and not, uh, not benefit, um, benefit through it. So the hope was that things will change for them. But like we've seen, nothing has changed for poor people in this country. And again, the president and his cabinet have made a lot of commitments, but we've seen during COVID that the poorest of the poor did not benefit out of the COVID funds, neither did they get any relief. And that continues to happen. Uh, this flood was the biggest I've ever seen in our country, in my city. Um, it's the first time I've seen so many people not accounted for, and so many people died, and among them a lot of the children, a lot of young people. Um, in going to the areas, we found that a lot of the young kids could not have a place to stay. Even the next day, they weren't. They were still living in those uh, inhumane conditions, what we call the shacklands, in transit camps that were there prior to the, the, the 2010 World Cup, where they were placed with the promise that these transit camps uh, will be a thing of the past and that better homes and decent homes will be provided well. The transit camps have been flooded and people have lost their lives. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. For those of you who are just joining us or missed it, our guest is Desmond Dessa, South African environmentalist and recipient of the 2014 Goldman Prize. He is known for protesting environmental issues in Durban, South Africa, which is where he is based. He lives in an area known as Cancer Alley, and his network has been successful in opposing polluting sites in we are discussing with him the recent flooding that happened in his hometown of uh, Durban, where hundreds of people lost their lives and many more injured and thousands were forced to evacuate. So Desmond, you know, when these kinds of things happen, you, you spoke about Katrina and your visit to, to the United States. Often we know when there is a natural disaster, it is exacerbated by a man-made disaster. In this case, neglect of communities and neglect of people who, who are poor. And in fact, a lot of the housing, uh, the New York Times has a, an article saying that the housing crisis uh, is what helped make that high death toll in South Africa because in 2009, in preparation for the World Cup of Soccer, the government moved hundreds of residents from their tin shacks, bad enough that they're living in tin shacks, near the city center to a flood, a flood prone field in the south of town. So Desmond, talk a little bit about this because we know that increasingly with global warming, with the climate crisis, we're seeing weather, including the rain bomb. But the interrelationship then, well, first of all, do you think that this event, the, at least the rain part of it, was connected to the climate crisis? What is happening with the crisis and government inaction or actions that exacerbate it? Desmond, so the rain bomb is directly linked to the climate crisis. You know, South Africa is a mining country. A lot of the mines um, have continued to, have to happen. A lot of mining is increasing because of the export uh, to China and, and Germany and other parts of the world. Uh, that continues in South Africa while signing the Glasgow Agreement. 
is on the other hand agreeing to mine even more. And now we've just seen with the since 2009 with Operation Patisha, the blue economy is to mine for oil and mine in the ocean of South Africa to the entire coastline from the Mozambican border right down to the Namibian border to the Northern Cape. The entire area has been sold out to big corporate oil corporations such as um, the Shell and BP, uh, the Cecil, uh, the Italian oil corporation, ExxonMobil, and rather, as well as the oil giants who come out of Texas, who have bought uh, up a lot of the, the ocean to do seismic testing and, and drilling. And they already know that, and we've been putting that off and fighting the law the whole of two years now. We've been pushing back against the seismic testing in our ocean because we've got one of the best oceans, clean beaches, and we've got a lot of marine life that feeds thousands of our people who are fisher folks. So um, people have put up a big fight against the oil and gas being explored on the ocean. They've seen the destruction on the land. And this has been long. The warnings have been there. We've had droughts on the northern parts of Durban. We've had huge amount of of rainfall in some parts of the country. And and now we've seen the real thing has happened. The rain bombs have come through. And this is directly linked to the high emissions, CO2 emissions in South Africa. The data is there. The South African government fully is aware of all this. And they have made promises to reduce CO2 emissions to reduce the carbon footprint, but the action is lacking. There's a lack of political will to do that and to address the issue of the social inequality in South Africa as well as that. Uh, the power of the industrialists and international oil corporations continue to hinder progress, to move to a just transition, to create jobs that will be sustainable and not harm people and the environment. And this firebomb exposes our government and those corporations in the sense that over 400 people had to lose their lives. But more importantly, they washed everything out and destroyed everything in the wake of the, of these heavy floods that came through. Um, to rebuild is going to take a, a lifetime. It's going to take a lot of years. Most of the province, most of the areas, most of the houses are destroyed. The roads, infrastructure is destroyed. Oh, people have had no water and continue not to have any water to drink, to wash with in the province, in the city. Uh, energy is a problem. The ESCOM debacle of the, the developing big coal-fired power station with the building of Madupi and Kushili, that the World Bank did not listen to the representation that I made in 2009 is a tragedy of justice, that they only took one side and listened to the government and didn't invest in just transition in renewable energy, which have created jobs, but also it would have helped us in the climate crisis that we're currently facing. So the ball stops right in, in Washington, D.C., at the World Bank housing, World Bank uh, where they where they placed, because they came back and said, wow, you know what, we did not know that they, they knew all along. And they allowed big corporations to do what they want to do and come here and take loans that the society will pay for the rest of their lives. Those millions of dollars that were given as a loan with high interest rates, we're going to pay for. It's a double dose in the sense that the climate now, we're going to have to rebuild our homes, rebuild our schools, all our clinics and hospitals. Some of them have been destroyed in this wake of this heavy flood. Um, people just don't even have food to, 
to go to bed with. They don't even have a bed to sleep on. They don't have any school kids, any school uniforms to give their kids to go to, to go to school. So this has been a warning. The climate has been indicating to us all along that there was time for change. These things are happening. We need to be proactive. We need to develop resilience. And the way to develop resilience is to get the society involved in the plans. And the government has failed to do that. In fact, it's a tragedy that so many people lost their lives when something could have been done to create an early alert so that people people be aware of the flooding and the heavy rains that are coming. But people were not forewarned. Nothing was done in that regard. And people were left to their own device. As, it, as I talk to you now, people are living in those conditions. They're sleeping on mud floors because the rain has brought down all the silicos uh, and everything through their homes. They're sleeping in places that are damaged. They're sleeping in community halls. They're not even sleeping in their homes. So it's a huge problem in South Africa. We hope that the international community will stop funding the fossil fuel throughout the continent that's ruining the continent, and it's a curse to all the people of this continent, whether we're in Nigeria, whether we're in Mozambique, whether we're in South Africa, or any part of the continent. The oil dynasty is a curse to the people. Those resources have never brought improvement in their lives and have not reduced the harm that they're currently feeling. And we see it this week, this last two weeks, okay. that people are worse off than they've ever been, and they've been impacted the most when it comes to right. the rich and the elite that suffer the most is the poorest of the poor who are already living in inhumane conditions, who already have suffered from the lack of access to water, to tap water or clean energy. Those are the people that suffer the most. Yet South Africa is producing a lot of energy through coal for certain big industries to ship their profits to New York, to London Stock Exchange, as well as, well as the Melbourne Stock Exchange. Nothing benefits a poor in this country. And we Desmond, should start we, we, we should Desmond, I'm afraid we are out of time for, for, for this segment. We needed much more time uh, to hear from you. But uh, thank you for all of what you're sharing with us and the complicity of the Western governments, the United States and Europe in terms of what is happening and all of it playing a role in the devastating floods uh, that happened there. We also want to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project, our partner uh, for our weekly Earth Minute, as well as our weekly Earth Watch. Uh, Desmond, we hope to have you back and to hear more about what you're saying, really critical information that we would like to get out help to get out thank you desmond de for joining us okay thank you so much all righty this is margaret prescott host of sojourner truth we are now going to wrap our show up actually also wrapping up national poetry month as is our tradition at least a few times during the month we like to welcome a poet to our airwaves and hopefully to share some poetry with you i would like to welcome back to sojourner truth uh, Ron Baca. He grew up in Boyle Heights in the shadow of the East Los Angeles Freeway Interchange. 
change. His poetry attempts to capture and reflect on people and events that contribute to celebrating one's roots. He is now based in El Sereno in East LA, which was my home for so many years. He taught for over 20 years at the Los Angeles Unified School District in Eastside Public Schools and is currently a volunteer tutor at Homeboy Industries. Ron Baca, welcome back. Hi, Margaret. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Ron, so that we don't miss any of it, right? We want you to go straight to your reading some poems. Will you read some poetry for us and then we could have a quick chat? Okay, that sounds great. I'd like to read a poem. It's called A Poet of Our Time. This is for Amy Uyimatsu. How does one spell struggle? How does one navigate the road in pursuit of justice? And what are the colors of redress and reparations? When suitcases are hurriedly packed and buses boarded, crammed shoulder to shoulder with families and relatives and entire communities, how do you spell struggle and justice and democracy? What do the colors of solidarity and memory look like at the front gate to Fort Sill in Oklahoma? What is the sound of demanding justice for immigrant children caged in concentration camps, wrapped in mylar blankets, shoulder to shoulder on concrete floors? What is the color of struggle, of justice, of redress and reparations, of solidarity? It is the color of movement, of the elliptical movement of the moon in full bloom. It is the color of the human heart and soul. It is the color of the human spirit. It is the color of a lifetime in the movement. Together, they are the color of unity, the color of love. This light, this poetess, draws us in to the poetic intersection of Eastside meets J-Town, to the intersection of the color of morning sunrise, interweaving thread-like, bringing all creation together like a braiding of golden thread, of silver and turquoise, jade and onyx and pearl, an array of earth tones, a blessing of Mother Earth gifts to all indigenous children and all people of the rainbow of Mother Earth. Today, we dance the endless and tireless and necessary drumbeat dance of the taiko drum and stand-up bass beats, and we sing the song of hopefulness and love and offer up prayer and sweet sage blessings for a poet of our time. Namaste. Paz. Wow, uh, Ron, your your poetry always stops uh, stops me in in my tracks. There, uh, we have uh, here's the decision to make, Ron, because I'd love to hear more of your poetry. We have got about four minutes left. Uh, do you think that we can fit another one in, and then have a, a very very quick chat or outro with you, Ron? What do you think? Sure. Sure. I can do that for sure. Thank I appreciate you. that. This is always running, and this is for all the people at Homeboy Industries where I'm a volunteer tutor. Always running. I saw him outside Homeboy 
on Bruno Street at the corner of Maine, behind an old beat-up green Toyota Corolla, an easy 6 and 250 mustache and a goatee, working his legs like pistons up and down, up and down, rapid, fast, piston-like motion, arms up, down, up, down, like a world-class sprinter, pure poetry in motion, white tank top, blue denim dickies, shorts neatly fagged, knee-length white athletic socks pulled knee-high, legs a blur. This is his gym, this tiny four-by-four-foot space, small, much smaller than a six-by-eight-foot cell. He looked me off as I walked past. He saw me looking at him without looking at me. He kept driving his legs, pumping his arms, doing his work work, doing his time on this side, in the sun, under a clear blue sky, running, always running, working his arms, working his legs, cardio time, running, always running. That is poet Ron Baca out of East Los Angeles. Ron, that last poem about homeboy industries. Now, we have listeners across the country and some in in Southern California who may not know about homeboy industries. Tell us about homeboy industries, because clearly your work with them inspired your last poem, Ron. Homeboy Industries was founded by Father Greg Boyle, a Jesuit priest in East Los Angeles, about 30 years ago, and it has developed into a multi-service program for former gang members, formerly incarcerated, providing assistance to them and support, workshops, parenting, anger management, tattoo removal, and job opportunities. And it's a fantastic program that has helped thousands and thousands of mostly young men and women of color who have benefited from the services of Homeboy Industries over the years. So I'm a volunteer tutor there, and I'd like to give a shout out to Brittany and Miss June, who was my mentor there as a volunteer. And I've been volunteering there uh, approximately seven years and currently working with young men and women who are getting their GED or high school diploma and who are in community college getting their AA degree. And some have gone on to the Cal State system and out-of-state college. It's fantastic, and they could use all the support, you know, that people are able, able to give from the community. So it's a great program, and it's been in existence for approximately 30 years, and I think it's benefiting a lot of our our youth who need those kinds of services, uh, even early on before high school, in in the junior high school level, at the high school level, you know, for counselors and community people to help young people stay on a good path towards their education. Ron Baca, our in-house poet, it seems. We love to have Ron on our show. He usually comes on during National Poetry Month, which is April. Ron, thank you so much for joining us yet again and sharing your poetry with us. We are out of time, so we got to (laughs) go. All righty. 
Um, yes, I'd like to thank all of today's guests. I'd like to thank our engineer, Gary Baca, our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, who holds down all kinds of tech issues that we have during the show. She and Gary, thank you for that. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow with very special Earth Day programming. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and y'all, please stay safe. Train along, so confused. Mixed up illusions, lot of confusion. People building bombs, that's no solution. I say, stand up for your rights, brother man. Must be aware some.